it's a great industry. It, it doesn't do you well in the beginning. I get it. There's a lot to dislike about it early on. There's a lot to kind of say, forget about it. And, and why am I doing this? But there may not be an industry that is more rewarding to you. If you put in the time, effort, energy, passion to it, you can be making a lot of money when you get to those upper echelons. There's great life, great salary, great people, great people abound in this industry. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to hopefully have my new friend, Kevin Flannery, owner-operator of Vinyl Steakhouse and also certified sommelier. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. We're certainly going to be new friends. I can't <laughs> wait to get you up to New York here to, to show, you, show you around, show you Vinyl Steakhouse. I'm excited to be there. And listen, Kevin, we start every podcast the same way here. Okay. What was your first job in hospitality? Uh, my first job was a dishwasher at a, uh, I think now out of business chain of restaurants called Damon's Barbecue in yeah. Akron, Ohio. And I was a big family of six. My parents kind of blue collar, weren't making a ton of money, needed the kiddos to go out and get jobs to kind of throw into the family pot. My dad wrote, drove me around to restaurants until this Damon's place hired me. And I started washing dishes at 16 and one day old. <laughs> Man, so 16-year-old washing dishes. What was that like for you the first time walking in there? Because I know walking in a certain kitchen, sometimes it can be an eye-opener, especially at that age. Well, it's funny because in the first one, I think I was just too naive to even see the fear or like the intimidation <laughs> of like adults. I was just this kid and I was just going to do what I was told. And I actually kind of loved it because I was by myself in the dish pit kind of alone with my thoughts. I was just working hard. You know, I was everybody's hero and I didn't even know it because I was mm. just working hard and not asking questions. Yeah. And so that one was great. You know, I mean, I think later in life, I got the more so the aura of like the intimidation factor of walking in as the new guy, you know? Yeah. And so when you were doing this at 16, it was like it's just a summer job. Were you doing it every day? Like, how was it working? Uh, no, I, I was doing it like full on. It, it started as a summer thing. And then I would like do on the weekends. 
and you know spot help out during the week after school and stuff yeah and it was tough because i went to a my parents insisted on sending me to a catholic school that was like a, a fairly high priced catholic school and they had no money for it because they were just pretty pretty diehard religious Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of my friends, like, you know, none of them had to work or anything. So they'd be calling me up on a friend. The, the, the hostess would come be like, yeah, you know, Billy's on the phone calling for you. And I'd have to go out and take it and tell him I'm not coming. I got a job to do. So I learned early in the, the, the trials and tribulations of working nights and weekends when all your loved ones are, you know. That's true. And so throughout high school, you stayed the same place. Uh, yeah, through high school, I stayed there. Yeah, it wasn't until I, I took some odd jobs too. I actually worked at, worked at uh, Foot Locker once. So I, I wore nice. a referee jersey. I did some retail landscaping, construction. You know, I had all kinds of stuff going on to try oh, to see. make some money. Like a renaissance um, man. So when you decided to go to the Ohio State University, mm -hmm. was it that you wanted to do hospitality or was that just like, oh, that was just a job I did? No, absolutely time? no interest in doing further hospitality when I went to Ohio State. I uh, tried to go to the business school. It was a competitive business school there. I, I couldn't make it through the calculus. Uh, that sort of weeded me out. So I, I shifted gears to communication and journalism. I thought I was going to maybe be a writer. And I started getting into fine dining to, uh, you know, pay my rent down there and have some beer money and things like that. And uh, that's when I kind of started catching the hospitality bug. It was when I entered fine dining. Is really so what was that like? So set the scene, fine dining. What is the restaurant? What kind of food was it that kind of caught your eye in there? Yeah. So and it's funny, this is important to, to today, to this moment now with Vinyl Steakhouse. I mean, this is what the influence began when I was about 20 one 22 years old so i'm at morton's steakhouse mm -hmm. in uh, nationwide boulevard in columbus ohio and uh, at the time i don't know how many people remember morton's back then but this was you know i guess 2000 and, and around the 2000 or 2001 very very quality global yeah, high end steakhouse i mean super high end they they had a ceo uh, alan bernstein who was great who said at the time that you know if you're going to be in the the higher end echelon of dining you know be the rolls royce don't don't be anything else so they had like a 60 dollars filet on their menu in like 2001 so it, and i was wearing a tuxedo to work it was very fancy formal but this part of this kid from cleveland kind of thing couldn't get out of my head with the rock and roll we used to drive around and listen to and and all the fun music that we were listening to and it was it was stuffy though it was a stuffy place you know there it was Old yeah. clientele that was, you know, jacket and tie required. And all the business played. deals happening there from Columbus. There wasn't too much. I mean, it was a lot of neighborhood locals and stuff. Very nice mm -hmm. people. But it started my wheels turning that, hey, in fine dining, this is great. You know, there's really cool people, really important and, and, and influential and, and nice people to meet. You get treated really well throughout the dining experience. And uh, I wanted to learn more about it at that time. And so you with them for a while, like you doing well because you're there almost 10 years. Yeah. And so what was yeah. your journey like working at Morton's? Because you started as was like a server and then kind of worked your way up because you wanted to. Or was it because you were just a good employee that kept saying, hey, man, you should chase your dream and be a leader. What was it like? Yeah, I started as a busser and uh, did it. Actually, I always joke until I became a general manager. The longest position I ever held in the restaurant industry was a busboy because I had a I had a GM who didn't really uh, he was one of those classics that, you know, hey, if he's doing a great job, let's not talk about promotion with him because he's making my life easier every day. So the second right. a new GM came in, 
he uh, inspired me to do more and, uh, you know, saw my potential. So I got promoted to server. And then the promotions just kind of kept coming. You know, I became a server and then a food and beverage manager and then a, a, a captain and, a, and a, a dining room manager, et cetera. So I think at the time I was I was really proud. I think at that at that time in 2006, I believe it was, I think I became the youngest GM in the history of their company because they had a amazing. more older, esteemed uh experienced general managers. And I was only about 25 mm -hmm. or so. And I got a GM job in Burbank, California. I had moved out there. Oh, wow. So you're moving around with Morton's. Yeah. They love to shuffle people around. So I, I did Morton's in uh, California. I was in Beverly Hills, downtown Los Angeles, Burbank. And then I moved all the way over to the other coast and did Washington, D.C., uh, two blocks from the White House and ran that as an assistant general manager. And uh, so, yeah, I, I had a good run with them. It was really great. And I, I probably wouldn't have left them except for the fact I had to move home to Columbus, Ohio, and they had closed their restaurant there. So that's when I, I jumped. All right. So that's part of the, the changeover. I was going to ask, but for someone coming up, like maybe just out of college, listening to this, you know, how are you moving up? Were you asking for promotions? Like once that new GM came, like how should they be doing it and looking at things if they're maybe coming out right now? I think that's an awesome question, Steve, and, and it's really hard to kind of know that. I, I think first and foremost, the promotions should be coming to you through your hard work. Uh, if you work harder than anybody else next to you, you're going to get noticed. Of course, you got to have integrity along that way, too, so that everybody knows you, trusts you, and can count on you. You know, you really got to be there for everybody and make an impact. I, if you do that, the promotions you would think should naturally come. And I think about 70% of the time they do with good organizations. But we already talked about the one guy who didn't want to promote me. Right. I made his life pretty easy. So you've got to also recognize when you need to speak up and you know your worth, you know, and maybe utilize your peers to kind of figure that out. But yeah, that's a great question. Hard to have the perfect answer, right? And you just got to yeah. kind of put your finger to the wind on that one. Because each place is different, right? You've been in different restaurants with different leaders, and each one has their thing that mm -hmm. you got to pay attention to. But, you know, you get back to Columbus. You said, like, you know, you would have stayed with Morton's, but you start looking for a new restaurant to join. Did you just join the first one, or did you look around before you found high No, Park it's restaurant kind group? of a funny story because the when you go to Columbus, Ohio, the guy you talk to to get a restaurant job is Cameron Mitchell. Are you familiar with Cameron? Who is Cameron Mitchell? He's my restaurant idol. He runs uh, an absolutely incredible restaurant group out of Columbus. They own Ocean Primes, which are around the nation. Yes. So you go there and you, and you go meet the, it's like going to see the Wizard of Oz. You know, you go into his, to his, to his office and try to get a job. But he, at that time, had never hired a GM from outside of his organization. It was all exclusively promote from within, which I actually personally love and believe in too. Mm -hmm. But I knew my worth. I knew I was talented. I'd been a GM for a while. So I said, I'm sorry, Cameron, I can't do that. I got to stay being a general manager. So Hyde Park Restaurant Group out of Cleveland hired me. And they got a great steakhouse. They do. Uh, they got a good reputation. I worked for them for a few years, uh, mm -hmm. equally as fine dining, you know, as, as the other places I had worked. But the funny story about it all is come about three or four years later, I wanted I, I realized that moving home to Ohio to spend time with family and friends doesn't really work when you're in the restaurant industry. I think I saw them less in Ohio, two hours south of them than I did yep. 
when I was in Washington, D.C. with a with a company that had just a, a, a linear policy on getting time off and stuff. So I went back and to Cameron, I said, hey, I love the big cities. I love New York. I love L.A. Would, would you consider me for one of those? And Cameron uh, brought me in to run his Manhattan restaurant on 52nd Street. And then yeah, I got me to New York working with Cameron Mitchell. Yeah, because when before you get with the Cameron, you're at Hyde Park Restaurant Group another 10 years. And it looks like you get uh, certified. No, it wasn't 10. I no? think it was, I, I might have misprinted that or something. Got it. All yeah, right. So there for like a while, but you get four. certified there as a sommelier, right? Yes. Is that part of the journey? Yes. Yeah, that's part of the journey. And was that something that you knew you wanted to do or they opened the door for you? Because I think a lot of people, like I was like, that's like, man, I, maybe I get my certification here. But then you realize it's a lot more than you think it is. Yeah, it is a big difference. I mean, especially from the intro to the certified, people don't realize that's like, uh, you know, that's like becoming uh yeah, professional player athletes yeah. like you're the yeah, best yeah, of the best yeah. there's there's only you know thousands in the world now certified it was it was a big achievement of mine but i did put down the you know the wine ambitions after that i do not have interest in advanced or, or master of course it's just it's so much time commitment i highly recommend if, if you're passionate about wine and you love wine it's a no-brainer to get the intro because it's such a cool resume builder and it's such it's a privilege for your guests i mean at vinyl mm -hmm. steakhouse we have paid to make two of our uh associates become psalms because every time we do it it makes us sound we do an initial greet to the table we got a couple things we tell them about you know our menu being chef driven our the records we play and then we tell them there's three or four psalms in this little restaurant tonight you know and if you want to see one and that gets them excited and they're asking. Yeah. So I, I think it's super powerful to become at least an intro some. And then if you catch the bug after that and you can't get enough of it, go for the certified. But it will be like studying for, a, you know, a, like the bar or something. You're going to have to give it your all. Well, let's now jump to where you were at with Cameron Mitchell, right? The yeah. Wizard of Oz that you set the scene with. You came to him a couple of years earlier. wasn't the right time. Now you're moving up to New York City. Yeah. So what was that experience like for you working with Cameron Mitchell restaurants? Oh, it was so cool. It was it was awesome. I remember when I land, there was a lot of hullabaloo about them maybe hiring me for that, being an outsider. Of course, to move to New York City, you know, it had to be worth it for me, had to be worth it for them. So I knew, you know, they were really putting themselves out there and taking a risk. And I was I remember getting that job was one of the greatest moments in my career. I, I actually, I think shouted out loud and, and pumped my fist, you know, like a, like a yeah. Jerry Maguire scene or something when I got that. Cause I was so stoked yeah. moving to New York city, playing in the best of the best, you know, in my opinion with the hospitality competition and it went really well. I took over the restaurant. It, it was doing about nine and a half, 10 million in sales at that time. And yeah. uh, as I left and walked out the door, it was doing 20 million. It's amazing. So they, they were super happy with me. I met incredible people. I ended up becoming the regional director for the entire East Coast for them uh, for about a year and a half before I left to start my passion project. And I got to tell you, Steve, it's it's one of the cool things that I'd like to say today of, of all the things. When you have a passion and a dream to start a concept and it gets in you and starts running in your blood, this is a great example of how sometimes doing it's not even a choice because I had a pretty darn good life there. I mean, it was they are great people. They will take incredible care of you. The pay was right. Time off galore. And I kind of threw it all away because I couldn't get this thing out of my system. You know, 
I had to do it. Uh, so I want to talk about that because a lot of people have ideas or oh, I have this dream to do this one day, but they actually don't make any actionable steps. Mm-hmm. So you have this idea, you're thinking about it as you're helping Cameron Mitchell grow his restaurants. Where does it start to change for you? Is it like on a flight that you're thinking about, man, I really want to start something. You start sketching it out. Is it over dinner with some friends? How does your yeah. idea start to shape? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I don't know if there's any one answer. I would say this, and I do say this to people a lot, put it out there. Put it out there into this universe. Start telling people about it. Start telling friends. Start telling family, loved ones. I did that so much over 15 years, telling people about how I was going to start this really cool fine dining steakhouse that was also casual and approachable and played rock and roll. I said it to so many people that I would have died someday the biggest liar on planet Earth if I never <laughs> did this thing. So put it out there because then if you're if you are a person of 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 kind of commitment to what you say, you kind of got to do it at some point, you know. So it, it it's it's pinning yourself a bit against the wall. It's a little dangerous too, but once you start putting it out there, I think it's good advice. I also think, you know, you got to look for your moment to seize the opportunity. I mean. I, I actually was one of those few people that kind of got uh, one of the, the benefits of the COVID-19 pandemic because I wouldn't probably have been able to. I looked into starting my restaurant before the pandemic and I was going to have to raise multiple millions of dollars to do right. it, which was going to dilute my equity uh, pretty heavily. After the pandemic, I didn't need that much. I mean, it was it was still in the million dollar range. but. You, you've got an ex, a, a history like I do in the industry and, and you know, and to your listeners, you got to develop. You do got to put in the work and really kind of get to the place where people are going to trust in you to contribute. But I think there's no perfect time to do it. But if you the other problem I'd say is, too, is a lot of companies don't want to hear about your your hopes and dreams. They want you to work for them ambitiously. And that is always a, a missing hole. And I hope Vinyl Steakhouse can change that someday and, and try to help people uh, pursue their ambitions, too. But that's tough because, you know, you kind of got to you can't really talk about it while you're working this grind every week. So you got to do all this in your part time hours and late at nights and early in the mornings. And that's where I think people lose the steam. But you just got to keep plowing through, you know. No, I love that you kept repeating it. You spoke it into existence here. Yeah. And so as you start doing it, you're doing it on the part times. You're not, you're not stepping on Cameron Mitchell's uh, hours, but you're doing it on your off hours. Yeah. When do you decide, like, all right, this is game time now? Like, when does that decision come? And was people supportive of you, or was uh, their family like you're crazy? Yeah, there was so much back and forth on that. There was a moment in time where I thought, well, maybe I'll just keep my my uh, CMR job and I'll kind of do this on the side and I'll hire a really good general manager. It became pretty apparent I was going to have to be involved if I wanted it to be the concept I envisioned. So I knew I had to do it. I think it the for me, when you start signing things that are of a legal nature, it's it's happening and you've got to, you mm-hmm. got to start being open and honest about what's happening. You know, you got a lease coming down those a New York City lease, you're signing on the dotted line with a personal guarantee. Uh, you, there's pretty much no more uh, hiding anything at that point, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it, it's perfectly fine to start working on a business plan, a model. You know, you got to have a really good friend with that knows Excel, which we all have that friend somewhere. <laughs> um, that was my brother-in-law, Phil. I mean, he made these Excel documents that I, I could have never made in a million years, but they were able to punch in a few numbers, 
get the reality of the matter. Can we make some money? Can we do this? How much money will we lose? So yeah, you do a whole, you know, countless amount of weeks and months of sort of seeing if this thing's got legs and if people are into the concept and such. And then once you start feeling like, okay, people want to do this with me and I'm looking at this, I think we can make a few bucks or at least survive. And, and, and then it, it, you, you can start signing on some dotted lines, you know? I like it. So when you signed the dotted line on this lease, how long did it take you to find that place? Was it like a movie where you walked in the first place and found it? Or was it a long journey till you found the space? It was a long journey. And I think part of that has to do with it being New York. I don't know if it would be quite as long of a journey if I did it in my hometown of Cleveland or something. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. New York's just got so many quirks. The landlords are tough to just inherently trust. There's a lot going on. You know, I, We have good landlords. We're happy with them. Uh, we, we basically kind of stumbled into this spot and it's been a total blessing in disguise. We were looking, we really wanted to try to, uh, go to the Greenwich village area because we thought that whole kind of, you know, story of of Bob Dylan coming up in Greenwich village with the whole music scene down there. I'm a big Mm -hmm. Dylan fan. We thought that would like hit the spot, you know, and we just couldn't find anything, the right size or space. And, it was tricky because people were hanging on to their leases post pandemic. So the landlords wanted them out, but they weren't going anywhere. There's a lot of legal kind of unknowns happening. So we didn't want to, of course, we're also sympathetic hospitality, but we won't step on anybody's toes here. Yeah. But we finally found a spot that was clean. The people were gone. We didn't have to like worry about them getting evicted or something, which we were very uncomfortable with on a couple things that we were looking at at first. And it was great. It was. It used to be a Spanish restaurant. It had a great reputation. Left the floors and the ceilings as is. It was vented. My recommendation for first-time restaurateurs is to try to find a second-generation space, a place that's been, you know, gently loved. Was a restaurant. Maybe didn't make it, sadly, but it, it's got the bones. You can put the paint in, get the artwork, get a designer on a budget, get something up and running because i think doing remodels and build outs as a first time is is extremely scary yeah i'm sure you have to get a lot more permitting done right yeah yeah and the timelines are unknown because of that you know that's cool that you found because the restaurant's beautiful and i've seen that it just looks really cool and a good vibe i'm excited yeah it's a great part of town i mean Flatiron is not an area i used to hang out in I've always lived on the west side of Manhattan, so I, I know that pretty well. Flatiron's right in the middle. I mean, it's true. If you threw a dartboard at Manhattan, it's almost the bullseye. And so you can't ask for more. You can get east side, west siders, north. You know, you're close to Midtown, close to Madison Square Garden for all the concerts that you know people want to go to that relate to our restaurant. So I'm super happy with it. It was a bit of dumb luck. We kind of stumbled into it, but it's been a really good location for us. Yeah, so all timing. So you start putting this together. You've got this vision of your rock and roll steakhouse that's ultra high end, but still comfortable. Mm-hmm. How do you start finding the chef? Is it someone you know from your past life that you're working with? Because I'm sure you have a ton of connections. Were you bringing in people from your past restaurants or was it all brand new people coming through? Yeah, you would think so. And I would have liked to have done so, but I was hyper, hyper sensitive to not stealing anybody from any company I've ever known. I didn't want to take anybody from, you know, Morton's Hyde Park or especially, you know, Cameron Mitchell, who I just worked for. So 
I really stayed far away from a lot of that and tried to find my own people on my own new path. I also, I wanted this to be a fresh start. You know, I wanted to work with people I maybe hadn't met. I wanted to be, uh, you know, the leader I could be uh, newly defined as, as my own ownership. So it was pretty kind of grassroots, just putting out ads, kind of asking around, looking into headhunters, all that type of thing. We've we've turned out to actually have probably one of the greatest staffs I've ever worked for in my entire career and doing so again, just, I guess sometimes, you know, good luck follows hard work as my dad says, mm-hmm. and we've lucked out. We have amazing people. Um, but our initial chef is, you know, he's not with us any longer, but he put together a great menu. I think he moved out of town, but he put together a wonderful menu and it's been very successful for us. I love it. So as you're starting to do this, were there things before, I want to get to opening day, but as you're yeah. getting ready to opening, were there things you're like, man, I don't, I've never really been through this. Even though you've been in restaurants your whole life, were there certain things you're like, wow, this is not what I expected? I think uh, there was a lot of that in the pre-opening because there's a lot of like legal things happening that you don't mm-hmm. know of. And those costs are more astronomical than you realize. Yeah, It's like, you know, taxes, uh, you know, real estate taxes and things you're just not familiar with that just pop up and you're like, wow, okay. I guess Cameron always dealt with that for me. So there, there was a lot of unknowns, but I have to say, I I think, you know, for me, actually, believe it or not, never in my almost 20 years of general managing prior to opening. Well, I guess I was GM more for 15 years, but I had never actually opened a restaurant. I was never part of an opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never, uh, every restaurant I ever ran, I, I moved in as the new GM post some other GM take and I took over and, and I always did it. It kind of wasn't a reopening to me cause I was changing things and getting everybody to buy into my, you know, positive mentalities and such, but I had never done the, the nuts and bolts of it. So I didn't know how it would go. It went really well. I think I, I think prepper, I always say preparation is the key to success and, mm-hmm. You know, I just kind of watched the openings from afar when I was like regional directoring and stuff. And I said, all right, I see how they do this. Let me just kind of lock that in here and and we'll we'll do some of those same practices. And it worked really well. I love it. So, all right. You get this other thing ready to go. Opening day. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember what that was like? Yeah, it was a disaster, actually. Yeah, <laughs> the worst crash day and burn? in the history of Vinyl Steakhouse is the premiere night. And it still is to this day, and I guarantee it'll be the worst day until we close our doors, you know, whatever many, many years from now that that So is. give us a little bit of it so that uh, we can learn from well, what happened. as I always tell people, if we were an airline, we learned how to buy the jets, fly the plane, land the plane, great pilots, great stewardess, everything. We forgot how to sell the tickets. <laughs> And we have a 300 person plane and 600 people showed up for their flight and it was chaos getting them who's who. So we just didn't think about the whole operational logistical thing of, hey, you ring in your food, it goes to the kitchen, the the chip prints up, and now here's what you do X, Y, and Z after that. Here's the system. Mm -hmm. We just completely forgot to talk about it more or less in the hustle and bustle of everything else. Uh, so that was a disaster. I ended up, I think, grilling some steaks by the end of the night. Personally, I was basically going around apologizing. The only good news was it was a totally con- I highly recommend make your opening test night a free night. Yep. 
a lot of people squirm over that and say, oh, I don't want to give up. You know, it cost us, I think, eight grand to do that night pro bono. But at least nobody could complain. At the end. Right. And then no bad the reviews going out. Bono. And they know what you're going through, of course, and they're friends and family and they're sympathetic. They probably thought we were destined to be doomed forever, but we learned everything we needed to learn. We've never had another bad night since. We're the highest rated steakhouse in Manhattan on Yelp. Uh, we're a 4.8 pushing 4.9 on Google. We've done everything right since. It was just a bad, bad first night. So that first day, right, you're going through it. What happens the next day? You all right? We're regrouping, guys. We went through this. Did you have the plan already in your mind? Or oh yeah, it? yeah. We we all got up early, got back in, got coffee, just quickly tried to learn everything we could from it, and uh, rebounded pretty pretty nicely on that one. Yeah, that's awesome. So now let's talk about what's going on there today. So give us the download for the listeners. I, I recommend you take a pause if you're not driving. But pause, take a look at the restaurant. It's awesome. It's got a great menu, but give us the download on it. You know, what is the restaurant, the vision you have created? Yeah, I mean, so when I thought of it back in Columbus, Ohio, when I was in my 20s, I thought of the concept and it was going to be a little more of this sort of hybrid of like almost like insane fine dining with a casual approach. So my original vision was maybe even I'm still wearing a tuxedo. The servers are wearing tuxedos, white glove. Um, so fine dining and ritzy and amazing. It's just off the charts. And then we're playing the Rolling Stones album while you have dinner, right? And then as the concept kind of came to me later, and, and I guess 20 years have gone by in society and stuff, I said, I, I don't want to wear a tuxedo. The whole reason I thought of this was to get to a place where, you know, me and my staff can be approachable and warm and welcoming and genuine. So, so it's evolved a bit. So what it is now is we try to emulate, we've set out from day one to become an iconic New York steakhouse. So how do you become an icon? Well, you have to be the, one of the best. So we found the purveyors that serve to the best Keens, Peter Lugers, you know, Wolfgang's Gallagher's these, these, these steakhouses have been in business for decades, if not century plus. And they got to be doing something right. So we found their beef purveyors. We got them into the restaurant. We talked to them. We said, give us their steak plus one if you can. Uh, we want the best steak money can buy. It's it's made it very hard to turn an early profit, but it's turned out to make us very successful in our reviews and the quality. So we got the food now. We, we got a really cool menu. Our chef is uh, Chef Kevin Hoffman is currently at the helm. Very talented, very brilliant with food. He's been preceded by our opening chef, like I said, who was a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. So we say our chef, uh, our menu has a lot of chef driven left turns. Mm -hmm. So it's not cream spinach for us. It's cream spinach carbonara. It's not scallop potato. It's loaded potato pave. It's not a butter cake. It's a olive oil cake with a blueberry compote. So it's a place culinarians can get excited about as a steakhouse. So you got the beef. You've got the kind of cool cuisine for, for foodies. And now we go for the service, which is I've taught my staff 20 years of fine dining etiquette, table maintenance, et cetera. So you're going to get your glasses are never going to be empty. Your table's going to be maintained beautifully. Uh, excellent uh, menu knowledge. And then last but not least, we get the fun part where Vinyl Steakhouse is like basically taking your neighborhood dive bar that you have the best time ever. And you're literally, you know, singing the songs along at the bar and turning it into a fine dining steakhouse. We have 2,500 records that we play every night. Our focus is on 60s, 70s rock and roll. 
But we do play a lot of other stuff. We have funk, we have jazz, we have disco, we have rap, we have everything that you can imagine. We keep it all on discogs and we try to let our guests get in on the fun if they're if they're so interested in doing so. Yeah, so how do you handle that? Do you take recommendations? I'm sure you have some very specific people that want to hear something or that turn that down. I didn't expect that. Do you ever have any? Yeah, yeah yes. We So a couple of things all embedded in that. One, uh, my wife and I probably talked for days when you totaled all the hours up about how we were going to do the music. And a lot of people said, well, it's Vinyl Steakhouse. You've got to play the whole record. Or you're not doing the just. I said, how about this? Let's compromise. We're going to play full side A's and full side B's. That way, if you don't like Tom Petty that much, you only got to get through 20 minutes of them. Or if you hate Billy Joel, you got 20 minutes and then you're on to, you know, your, your next band that you love. So we play a full side because we want to respect what a vinyl record's about, that it's not song for song. It's not skipping tracks. You listen to the music as the artist intended. So you'll hear a whole side of whatever album we're playing. People do get into it. We do take requests, uh, especially if it's a birthday or anniversary. We always try to get it in their hands. Because when you're playing a full side, you can't take a lot of requests. If you request an album and six people are ahead of you, you might be done with dinner by the time your album's coming up. So we can't, for that reason, hand it out to everybody. But what we do is every day I come in, Steve, I pull all the records we played last night, we put them all away, and I go back through and I pick a whole new set list of about another 50 records for the night. And then that way we're listening to new music. Guests are listening to new music. It's a lot of fun. So you're the record sommelier as well. Is what I guess you're so, me. yeah. Yeah, we oh, actually so You're certified cool in both ways, yeah. We actually do a really cool thing that people have enjoyed called a sip and spin that I've done on numerous occasions where I actually pick vinyl records and I pair them to wines. So I've done Led Zeppelin's song Remain the Same album to a beautiful 2018 Barolo that we have in-house. I've done... Uh, Tom Petty's Wildflowers to Paul Meyer Chardonnay. Uh, I've done Prince's 1999 album to a bottle of champagne. And we talk about the band, the album, you know, what's going on and how that kind of pairs and relates to the wine. I love it because you're creating unique experiences for guests. And that's what they seem to want more and more across the globe. And you've created this awesome place for people to have that. So you're winning awards. You're getting great articles written about you. What is next for you now? I'm not saying like your 10 year plan, but like let's say in the next 12 to 24 months, what's next for you? Well, I got a baby due in like 10 days. So oh, I got wow. a, his name's Donovan. I got to got to meet him and make sure he's off to the races. Uh, my wife, Sophia, is, is doing amazing and, and going to be at home with him. God bless. We're able to make that work at least, you know, a small business. I'll probably go in and have to run the restaurant. She'll take care of the baby. But once that's kind of settled down, we're very excited to hoping to uh, start our next concept in Nashville, Tennessee. And I talked to you earlier about how you got to put it out there and put it out there. I mean, I'm on your podcast putting it out there because we want to do this. It's Music City. Uh, We think that a lot of the steakhouses there are great, but they kind of cater more to you know, the, the tourism and the convention crowd and stuff. We want to create one for a lot more of the locals and the residents and the musicians that live there and create something special. So we're going to try to get to Nashville within the next two years. And now that our name's out there, I keep getting, you know, I had somebody call me from DC the other day that wants to talk to us. I've got more opportunities here in New York City that are popping up. We've got an idea to do this thing in an Italian way as well, you know, so we're, we're thinking about all kinds of stuff. Well, listen, I like to put a vote in for Miami because all the New York <laughs> yes. restaurants are coming down to our hometown here in Miami. 
And I don't know if, if I you can, can see my Irish skin through the screen, <laughs> Steve, but uh, I don't do well down there. But I'll try. You, you'll get you'll get a nice tan down here. We'll make sure you're taken <laughs> care of here, especially on the beach. But if uh, any of us listeners or myself can help you on that, we definitely will. But Kevin, you've given us an awesome history of what you've got going on. You've worked at some great places. But if young Kevin was coming into your restaurant as a dishwasher today, what advice would you have for him? Just stay the course. It's a great industry. It, it doesn't do you well in the beginning. I get it. There's a lot to dislike about it early on. There's a lot to kind of say, forget about it. And, and why am I doing this? But there may not be an industry that is more rewarding to you. If you put in the time, effort, energy, passion to it, you can be making a lot of money. You can be, uh, you know, Steve, you've had a ton of success. You know, uh, when you get to those upper echelons, there's great life, great salary, great people, great people abound in this industry. So I just think people just got to stay in the fight. I see young people all the time and they kind of give up or they, they don't bring the passion on it. And I don't know where, sadly, I don't know where they go and what they do, but this industry will take care of you if you take care of it. Yeah, I think that's a great line to end on. And Kevin, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your story with all of us. And listeners, make sure... Check out Vinyl Steakhouse. If you're in New York, go see Kevin. He's going to take great care of you. I think big things are ahead for you, man. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Steve. And I reiterate that if your listeners come in, just tell me you're a listener of Steve's and we will absolutely do something special for you. And uh, it's an honor to be on your show. I'll come back anytime uh, if you want to talk more, okay? Appreciate it, man. Very grateful. All right. Thanks, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.